This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Tomorrow is the 135th anniversary of the Jack the Ripper killings in London. Why has the story of Jack the Ripper captivated the attention and the imagination of people for almost a century and a half? There's been all sorts of history books on this. There's been all sorts of books written about theories as to who Jack the Ripper actually is. There was even a Star Trek episode all about Jack the Ripper. There was a wonderful time travel movie that had Jack the Ripper and H.G. Wells actually being friends traveling to the 20th century together. It's actually very interesting, called Time After Time. But the most important aspect of this whole situation is Why did we never figure out who Jack the Ripper was? And with all the things that have been ascribed to Jack the Ripper, what do we know about what he actually did? Well, on the eve of the 135th anniversary of the Jack the Ripper killings in London, we are very, very lucky to be joined by Dr. Daniel Friedman, a very accomplished doctor. He's a uh, pediatrician and assistant uh, clinical professor at uh, Northwell Hofstra University Medical School. He's also an author. He's written a couple of books delving into the worlds of Jack the Ripper and, you ready for this, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. When you think Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you think mystery. And when you think mystery and Sherlock Holmes, certainly you think Arthur Conan Doyle. His latest book, is uh, Doyle's World, Lost and Found, The Unknown Histories of Sherlock Holmes and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Very, very pleased to be joined by Dr. Daniel Friedman. Dr. Friedman, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, thank you, Frank, for having me as a guest today. I'm really looking forward to talking about what happened 135 years ago and uh, what, what really the reign of terror that Jack the Ripper created throughout Whitechapel, London, England, the world over. 
Well, I am uh, glad that you're joining me, and I hope you have a lot of time because I have a lot of questions for you about Jack the Ripper and about your uh, about your books. All right, um, before we talk about your research and about Jack the Ripper, tell me what sparked your interest initially. Was it the story of Jack the Ripper, or was it the life and times of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? Which of those things first kind of set you on this? path of uh, researching and set you down this rabbit hole, which you've clearly delved deep into. Yeah, you know, a lot of people start off on the other side. They start with Jack the Ripper. They look for things. They try to figure out, make connections, who the Ripper is, and they, and they find a name and they research that person. Mine came the exact opposite. Mine came in the medical school libraries, reading articles about Arthur Conan Doyle and saying, wow, this guy is nothing what I thought he was. I mean, at first, I came across an article that told me he was a physician, and he wrote a a thesis paper. And then there was another article that told me he may be the perpetrator of the greatest hoax of the 20th century, the Piltdown Man. And every time I started reading about him, I said, this guy's fascinating. He's not just a writer. He's so much more. Let me, as a pediatrician, Trace him back. Let me go start in his early earliest days in, in Edinburgh and follow his growth and development from the time he's 5, 6, 7, 13, 20, and 30 and see where his life goes. And that's how I came up with the connection between Arthur Conan Doyle and Jack the Ripper. So I started on the opposite extreme. I started with Arthur Conan Doyle himself and saying, whoa, what's going on with his 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 timeline, and that's where we came up with Jack the Ripper. All right, uh, so just give us a little context before we get into your research and your theories. What exactly does history tell us about Jack the Ripper? I think most people, I think just about everybody listening, has heard the name Jack the Ripper, and they know that he killed people. Beyond that, fill us in on what is undisputed fact. What do we know about what Jack the Ripper actually did? Well, we know for certain that 135 years ago, tomorrow, he made that excursion into Whitechapel where he killed at least four women. Now, that's what we do know. But what most people may not realize is those four prostitutes that he selected as his targets weren't the young prostitutes ages 16, 20, 24. They were all 42, 46. Five forty-seven-year-old women who are falling on very hard times. We call them the unfortunate class. That part we do know. We also know that he selected a specific time frame to be out in Whitechapel. He wasn't just doing this for an act of revenge, or he wasn't doing it for robbery. He was looking for something. He wanted to do something particular to show the world there was a a method to his madness. It wasn't just going out to kill someone because he wanted revenge for, you know, a a woman that scorned him. There was a specific purpose. We know that the way he did them were all very identical, neck slashings, mutilations to their bodies, and also positioning of their bodies and leaving little calling cards behind in the form of thimbles and handkerchiefs at the scene of the crime. So that part we do know. So the official body count is four. The, the, the lowest body count you can have is four. It can range up to a couple of dozen, but it's really the minimum has to be four. But they call the canonical 
five. They said there were five killings, although a lot of Jacksonville experts say that five is not correct. The fifth one was just a copycat, and it's just those first four. You, you know, it, it is interesting. We, we've been spending a lot of time looking at the Long Island serial killer and the Gilgo Beach uh, killings, and it looks like the Long Island serial killer might be guilty of as many as 10 slayings. He's already been connected to four. Why? So w- the point is there have been a lot of other killers over the years that have uh, killed many more than four people, and we're not talking about them 135 years later. What is it about the Jack the Ripper case and the Jack the Ripper killings that has so endured in the public consciousness? Why are we still talking about Jack the Ripper 135 years later? You know, that's the thing. This is like really the first shockwave that really hit London with the police being completely baffled. You have the entire, this is, this is a, you know, Gogo Beach, you know, uh, you know, Fire Island area, Long Beach area, small, not really that populated. Uh, you can get away, you can put someone on the beach, no one's going to see you at 12 in the, in the morning. This was the biggest city in the world back in 1888. London was the biggest populated city in the world. There was nothing bigger. And Whitechapel was this, very active. At midnight, the streets weren't empty. People were just getting back from their jobs. There were social events happening. People were getting ready to go to work at two in the morning. You and you have a, a, a man going out into this area, like the, the most populated area of the world, saying, "I don't care who's out to get me. If there could be a police force out to get me, there could be." Uh, night watchmen out to get me, vigilance committees out to get me, amateur sleuths ready to get me. I'm I'm going to play with you all. I know how to outwit you, outmaneuver you, outthink you, and be four or five steps ahead of you. No matter how clever you think you are, I'm that good. That's the audacity, the bravery this person, this individual had when he went out there and did two murders on the same night within 45 minutes of each other with the two entire different police force, city of London police force and the metropolitan police force looking for him. And then after he commits two separate murders, goes out and writes on the wall in chalk, a message challenging the police saying the Jews are not to be the men who will be blamed for nothing. And he leaves the, one of the pieces of an apron from one of his victims and leaves it at that doorstep. He was toying with the entire city of London's police force when he did that. That's the type of, that's why this man, like with the Gilgo Beach, he didn't challenge the police. Right. You know, he did everything kind of secretly. Or another example would be a guy like H.H. H. Holmes, America's first serial killer. Uh, I want to get to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, no, I want to ask you about H.H. H. Holmes in uh, in just a bit. I want to get back to the Jack the Ripper investigations and its failures if uh, in just a minute. But let's talk a little bit about Arthur Conan Doyle. I think a lot of people know that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle created the character of Sherlock Holmes. Beyond that, I don't know that a lot of our listeners know very much about him. What does history tell us about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? Well, I'm going to start you back when he's, as I said, I I was a pediatrician. I am a pediatrician. So I follow the growth and development of children from their earliest days until their adolescence and teenage years and and so on. 
Arthur Conan Doyle, when he started out his life, when he was five years old, he lived in a very abusive household. And these are the things that go on to make a serial killer. The, the, the environment that you live, the, the friends that you have, the experiences that you have. So at five, he lives in a very abusive household. His, his, his father's an abusive alcoholic. He's forced to live in a house down the road for him to go to school. In that school, he gets beaten by his teachers. He gets whipped. It's a year or two later, he gets sent off to another school in England, away from home. At that school, he's abused by his teachers. And he actually is, he writes that he was the most abused child in that school, being beaten basically every day of his life. And he, and he had no money at this school, so he was already in a different class. And he, in order to, like, feed himself, he would learn how to tell ghost stories because he becomes later in life this great storyteller. That's the origins of him learning the art, the craft. He, he had to tell these stories to, in order to survive. He learns how to climb down water pipes to escape from the school, to go into town to buy his, uh, his tobacco. Later on, he goes into college and he learns how to pickpocket his teachers during final examinations. He goes on to uh, the Arctic where he learns how to be the strongest member of a ship. And instead of being that ship's physician as a, as a, as a doctor, he actually becomes one of the whalers and, and learns how to kill the, the seals and club their heads with the, with, the, with the clubs and he beats them up. And he actually beats up the people on the boat on the first day. And mm. this is something that he does everywhere he goes. On the first day of a job, at a new job, he beat up his boss. At the first day of the new school, he stabs his child in the belly. At the first day when he walks into Portsmouth to his new home, he gets involved in a street fight where the police were called. Everywhere he goes, the first day he's somewhere, he has to prove his strength and, what he's, and how tough of a man he is. So this was something that was alerting, alarming to me as a red flag that something's going on with him, something is affecting him. And that was part of the original work that I had to work with, like what happens to a guy who is really physically and emotionally abused the way he was. And that's, of course, where the Jack the Ripper comes in. Yeah, with him. we're talking with Dr. Daniel Friedman. Uh, he's written a couple of books about uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, The Strange Case of Dr. Doyle, A Journey into Madness and Mayhem, and Doyle's Words, uh, Doyle's World Lost and Found, The Unknown Histories of Sherlock Holmes and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Take us back uh, to the Jack the Ripper investigation. Obviously, this was a big deal even back in the 1880s. It got a great deal of media attention at the time. I am sure this was a big priority for police and local law enforcement. How did the Jack the Ripper investigation go? Who was in charge of the Jack the Ripper investigation? And uh, what sort of course did they pursue in investigating it? Well, yeah, this this whole thing with the with the Jack the Ripper investigation comes really it, it actually evolves here, and the whole entire crime scene investigation involves you know evolves with this one case. You know, one thing people may not realize, but the the sneaker, the way we know it today, was invented to sneak on the the to follow Jack the Ripper without him hearing their footsteps or their clunky regulation boots. Uh, You're kidding! Officers. Wow! Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They would take like discarded tires, bicycle tires, and like. Uh, nailed them onto their shoes, on the soles of their shoes, so no one could hear him sneaking up on them. That's one of the things they did. Um, they mobilized the police forces 
so that there would be a, 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 these uh, police officers in plain uniforms looking for him on the streets. Uh, vigilance committees were set up finally to look for Jack the Ripper. And London was going to do something that they haven't done in a long time, which was a offer a reward for the capture of Jack the Ripper. They, they did not want to do that. And number two, they, Charles Warren, who was in charge of the, the police investigation, wanted to actually call out dogs, uh, Barnaby and Burgo, to track down the scent of Jack the Ripper. And although they didn't do that, uh, that was one of the plans was to try to use uh, uh, sluice dogs to follow the trail of Jack. There... So the entire way the, the, the yard was operating was changing rapidly to follow and find Jack the Ripper. What pu- publicly... What did Sir Arthur Conan Doyle think or at least say that he thought about Jack the Ripper and the Jack the Ripper investigation? Now, that was one of the things that actually got me to do my research on Jack the Ripper with with Arthur Conan Doyle. In in 1893, Arthur Conan Doyle wrote an article about one of the letters that Jack the Ripper left behind called the Dear Boss Letter. And in that letter, he stated that Jack the Ripper was probably a midwife. Um, he didn't say it was a woman. People can put, consider that, that he must have meant a woman, but he meant a midwife, meaning what we call an obstetrician, an OBGYN these days, someone who performed gynecological surgeries. So I, I think that was, you know, that's what he really meant. People think he meant the woman, like, a, like a Jane the Ripper, but it's not true, or Jill the Ripper. Um, he also said that the Ripper was probably someone who knew Americanisms, who understood the, the language of America, which, of course, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle did. One of his first stories, The American Tale, was written with American vernacular. So he was an expert on that type of, of word, wording of, of using Americanisms. Um, he also thought that the Ripper was um, used a special type of paper uh, high-quality paper, uh, which is one of the theories another writer went after, uh, Patricia Cromwell. She was also looking for this uh, Peary paper connection. Uh, now, because one of the, the, the letters left behind were using this high-quality artist-grade paper, and, of course, there was a picture uh, done by uh, Walter Strickert in the 1910s called uh, What Shall We Do to Pay the Rent? And it looked like it was the fifth murder scene, which... You know, it's, it's basically taking this picture looks like a murder scene from Jack the Ripper. Let's go back. Who drew the picture? It's Walter Sickert. Therefore, he must be the murderer. But again, that's basically going backwards and making things fit, not going forward, saying, here's Walter Sickert. What did he do in his life? How did he get to here? But interestingly enough, Arthur Conan Doyle was a student of William Rutherford. This William Rutherford was the model for a Professor Challenger in the Lost World. And that teacher in his own textbook, William Rutherford, and this is Doyle's teacher, stated that all of his students have to use the high-quality artist-grade paper made by Peary and Company, the same paper the Ripper used out of Aberdeen, uh, Scotland. So we know that Doyle, by, by having had him as his professor and being working as a vivisectionist in his lab, in this professor's lab, cutting open dogs' windpipes, then opening up their abdomens and cannulating their livers, which is what the Ripper also did on murder number four, uh, we know that Doyle had to have had that paper access at the same time. Wow. 
All right. Uh, yeah, so- we're, we're talking with Dr. Daniel Friedman, and uh, we're talking about Jack the Ripper and Arthur Conan Doyle. If you have questions, you can give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. When we come back, now keep in mind the period of time that we're talking about here. The uh, Jack the Ripper killings took place between 1888 and 1891. Arthur Conan Doyle was born in 1859, would have been about 28, 29 years old, about 30 years old when these Jack the Ripper killings took place. When we come back, I'm going to ask Daniel Friedman, and this is dealt with a little bit in his books, I'm going to ask Daniel Friedman if, and this may sound crazy to some people, but I'm going to ask the question, if there's a possibility that Arthur Conan Doyle was actually Jack the Ripper. We'll explore it in just a minute. 800-848-9222. My guest is Dr. Daniel Friedman. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. the hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, talking with uh, Dr. Daniel Friedman, who, along with his father, Eugene Friedman, is the author of the new book, Doyle's World, Lost and Found, The Unknown Histories of Sherlock Holmes and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, talking not only about Arthur Conan Doyle, but of Jack the Ripper. Tomorrow is the 135th anniversary of of some of these noteworthy killings. And uh, Dr. Friedman, I I do wonder, how did that work out, writing now two books with your father? I'm guessing that uh, presented a pretty unique set of of challenges and a a unique working environment for two doctors. You know, my dad and I used to uh, travel together by car to work, and when we were writing The Strange Case of Dr. Doyle, the tour chapters have dialogue. So we used to actually like act out the parts in the car to create the the storyline that you read during the tour. It was really one of those good pleasures with my dad speaking. Oh, I would like to do this, Veronica. And we would go back and it's like this is a good line. We should put this one in there. And and it really just became a way of us to you know to present our research 
you know, in a, in a way that wasn't just, you know, a list of facts. We wanted to really create a story for people. And, you know, that's why we used the tour, because actually Arthur Conan Doyle went on a tour of Whitechapel with one of the police coroners in 1905. And we thought that would be a great way of doing that. And it was actually one of the highlights of my life was working with my dad. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. I love hearing that. Now, I understand you're actually in Florida now when all eyes all over the world are on Florida because of this this storm, Hurricane Adalia. How uh, How is the weather? First of all, where in Florida are you now and how's the weather over there? Well, I'm in Orlando right now, and it just started to uh, come down in, uh, in the cats and dogs just like literally 10 minutes ago. Uh, up until then, it was very nice and calm. Winds were very sweet. But right now, we, we hear the rain picking up, and we know in another about three hours, it's going to be really heavy downpours down here. All right. Well, stay safe, and uh, I hope uh, hope you make out okay with this storm. All right. You describe in your book the strange case of Dr. Doyle in talking about Arthur Conan Doyle, who I think most of us knew as a mystery writer and the father of Sherlock Holmes, I think, at least I'll be honest, I did not realize that he was a medical doctor, but sure enough, in reading your book, I learned that he was. But you describe a man who was not only a medical doctor, but had a disregard for rules and regulations. You describe a man who experienced childhood trauma. You you describe a man who had incredible physical strength. The million-dollar question, Dan, was Arthur Conan Doyle Jack the Ripper? Well, you mentioned a lot of things that Jack the Ripper has to be. I mean, Jack the Ripper had audacity to challenge the police. And he actually, if you, and some people will tell you, some of those murders where he was, he, when he was doing his murders were in corners. He trapped himself in there. That meant if a police officer should happen to see him in the act, he knew there was only one way out, and that was to fight off or kill whoever was going to capture him. So this had, he had no qualms about doing that. This shows you. And where he did, like today, murder number one is going to be tomorrow night, 135 years ago. No one heard a scream from any of his victims. They were all silent. This guy had power beyond. This guy could strangle someone without anybody making a peep, and he could hold that person's neck tightly until they died in his arms. And then he would put them down on the ground, sever their necks from ear to ear, because this is a ritual that had to be completed uh, exactly the way it was written, and then do the abdominal mutilations. So you, don't, you can't have a 100-pound weakling doing this. I think some people like Aaron Kosminski as a, as a, as a, as a uh, potential uh, suspect, but he was less than 100 pounds and anorexic. He could never hold down these street-fighting women. You know, we need a guy like Arthur Conan Doyle with the power. But one thing for certain, whoever the Ripper was, had to been a Mason and not just any type of Freemason. And just, you know, this is not like this is a rogue Freemason. It wasn't like the Freemasons around the world were going to kill people. I mean, it's like, you know, you can have a rogue physician, a doctor who go out and kill people. Or you can have a rogue architect that we see in Gilgo Beach going out to kill people. It wasn't that, you know. They, they do this as a group or an organization. The Freemasons are, they do charity and goodwill, and there are people's communities helping out. But it just so happens that a third degree Mason has to do a specific, back in the 1880s, that is, had to do a, a ritual, a, a play of the, the masterworks of Hiram Abiff and his murder. And sometimes 
serial killers will read something and they, they, they get this ID fix, it's called, where they have to act that out to completion so they can go on with their normal lives. And I believe that's what happened here. Because in 1887, right before the Ripper crimes, Arthur Conan Doyle joins the Freemasons in January. But yet, two months later, he rises to the rank of a third-degree master mason. He does all their rituals, learns all their secret codes. And after he attains the rank of third-degree master mason, he basically doesn't do anything else with, the, with his Phoenix Lodge. He, and they were celebrating the 100th anniversary of a hospital, raising funds. For, he didn't do any of this as a physician. He didn't help with the raising of funds for the, the Portsmouth Hospital. He didn't help with their organization. And two years after his, actually a year and a half after he joins the Mason, he actually quits. And that's, as any Mason who's listening knows, you, you don't quit the Freemasons. It's something that's just really not done. And he did a formal letter of a demission to get out of the Masons. But I, the reason why I'm actually saying it's a Masonic ritual, and this is one thing that I, the code I broke when I, when I did my research on this, is because each of the, of the well, there's four murders, but the third murder was he was, the Ripper was basically going to be caught in the act, so he fled the scene. He didn't complete it. But murders one, two, and three actually follow a Masonic ritual. And I don't really think anybody's ever put that together before. So, and that's why I know, yeah. So it it sounds like the answer to my question is it, whether Arthur Conan Doyle is Jack the Ripper is probably. Well, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say Arthur Conan Doyle is the Ripper. He meets all the criteria and the psychological profile, and he had some type of. Uh, and you know, there is no motiveless murder. You have to have a motive. Something has to be there, and in his case. I do believe that the motive actually is actually an act of revenge, that he believed that his father, Charles, was who was admitted to mental hospitals at the age of 42 for, quote unquote, alcoholism. Actually, I believe he thought he was a victim of a tertiary syphilis. And that's a sexually transmitted disease one could get from prostitutes of London. Um, And of course, I believe that Arthur Conan Doyle, by extension, thought that his father transmitted because back in the day, back in the 1880s, even at Arthur Conan Doyle's medical school of the U- University of Edinburgh, it was taught that a father can transmit to his son the, the syphilitic germ through your, through your own genetic makeup without going through the mother. And I think he thought because he had jaw pain, he had a rash that looked like psoriasis, which is actually, as most doctors know, the rash of psoriasis can mimic the rash of syphilis. And he was having headaches at the age of 12 years old. He got electroconvulsive therapy as a child for them. And he even experimented on himself with a medicine that actually almost killed him. He, the, the person he was working for actually had to save his life. Um, and, and actually, also in Arthur Conan Doyle's thesis paper that he wrote literally in a month, time is a genius. He actually writes that he's experimenting on himself in his own medical school thesis for his PhD, what we call it, his MD degree. He writes that I'm taking a medicine in twice the recommended doses uh, and it hasn't done any ill effect on me. So we know that he was taking a medicine that was only meant to be given to syphilitic patients and he was taking that medicine at the age of 25. So he must have thought he had the disease, which of course, if he was under the impression that his father gave it to him and his father was incarcerated in mental hospitals at the age of 42 and never left. He, was, wow. he died in the mental hospital. He never got out of, he never went back home again. 
the age 42 is going to strike you. And that is why all the victims you see of the Ripper killings, all those four prostitutes were between the, those ages of the older 42 to 47 year old woman. They weren't 16 or 17 or 18. I mean, you get a picture. If you're, if you're a serial killer, you're looking to go kill prostitutes in the East End, you, you're not going to look for the 45-year-old the girl or 47. You're going to look for a 20-year-old. It doesn't make any sense. And there was no sexual assault on any of these victims. They were just, every one of them had a surgical procedure done on them. You know, the taking out of a kidney surgically precisely done wow. this the taking out of a uterus with one swoop of the knife and he knew exactly where to go we know now you got a guy who's doing a masonic ritual and who's a physician who's strong enough to murder four people without them making a peep you know you you start getting rid of a lot of other suspects by the virtue of what you need to be to be this person to be jack of course Doyle possessed all of them that is wild. 800-848-9222. Gene in Manhattan has a question. Hello, Gene. Hi there, Frank. Uh, I had always heard that Walter Sickert had uh, done that because he seemed to have the right timing outdoors uh, to be uh, uh, able to do that. And he, I believe, was single. And I don't know what all else there was involved with it. Yeah. He did rather curious kinds of paintings, evidently. Yeah, very interesting question, Gene. I- I've heard that theory, too, Dan, that uh, Walter Sickert, the the Impressionist painter, is one of the people suspected of being Jack the Ripper. What did your research show about Walter Sickert? Yeah, again, you know, and that's the, the premise of one of the, uh, another writer out there who actually used work that was based Think about 45 years ago, they, they, they mentioned that there was a painting called uh, What We Shall Do to Pay the Rent, and that showed the indoor butchering. Now, that was, remember, that was an indoor picture drawn by Walter Sicker, which I have seen. And quite honestly, it just, to me, it just looks like a man who's sad about who, who's depressed about what's going on in his life. The woman on the bed is in a position, but there doesn't seem to be any blood splatter on the wall. She's just a woman naked on a bed. But... Then again, the, the other connection with Walter Sicker was about the paper, that period paper we mentioned. The problem is that you also have to have the physical strength. to. And that picture was done in, the, I think, in 1910, maybe in that range. It was the townhouse, the, the Camden paintings. Uh, so it's, it's years later than the Ripper crimes were done. That's it's 25 years later. But you have to be a, a, a third-degree master mason, and you have to possess the physical power to subdue four women mm. and you also have to have medical i mean there was no unnecessary cuts done by the ripper the the, the ripper was trained surgically that is for sure as i was mentioning one sweep of the knife of the uterus he knew how to take out a kidney it wasn't done by a slaughter guy because they would never have known how to do these procedures as a matter of fact on one of the murders when you do a slashing, you kind of go up to up up and down with the knife, but the ripper did not. He actually started at the ziploid process of the chest and went down and avoided the the belly button, the navel, with the knife and went around it. That's a surgical procedure that doctors do in the OR even today. So, Sicker as a candidate, they basically it was as I said, they went from back to front. They said we have a picture. Drawn by Walter Sickert, let's go see if he could be the Ripper. They didn't connect all the dots here. They didn't get all the things that he has to be. And again, my connections, too, as I mentioned, I needed to make sure that Doyle, too, 
because I didn't want to have an empty theory that Doyle had, you know, used the paper too because, you know, his father was an artist. I had to make sure that Doyle really had artist-grade period paper. And in his Professor uh, Rutherford's textbook on page nine of Pathology, it states, I need all my students, and Doyle was his vivisectionist in in the secret lab. He was that man's lab assistant. Must use period paper, the quality of paper that the other book is mentioning that Walter Sicker would have had too. So the same way I went forward to find this information, other people have gone backward to see if he's had it too. But I don't think Walter Sicker had the power or the knowledge or strength or the physical torment that Doyle had mm. to be a guy going out of the streets at one in the morning, two in the morning, killing people. Uh, it, he doesn't see, meet that psychological profile. Interesting. W- what about some of the alternative theories to your own about the identity of Jack the Ripper? I've heard everything from Prince Albert Victor uh, to the attorney Montague John Druitt, who, after he died, the uh, the killing stopped right away to a number of other people. Do you lend any credence to the possibility that it may have been someone else? Uh, well, I will tell you right now, I'm not going to lie to you. When I first started this book, when I when I first started researching Jack the Ripper, I had to actually get rid of my first notion, which was I actually thought it was William Gull, the uh, the Queen's Royal Physician. Uh, I saw a movie when I was a kid. I think it was Michael Caine still was starring as um, the, the, the Queen's Physician, William Gull. But then I said, let me go see. You know, maybe he's it because they had the movie. It's possible. It makes sense. Maybe... It, maybe it was the prince. Maybe it was uh, he. It, but then I said no. He was over in, in Scotland at Balmoral Castle, so it can't be the prince. He wasn't around. He was entertaining dignitaries, dignitaries from around the world at the time. Um, and then William Gull, when I looked up his information at age seventy-one, which he would have been at the time of the murders, he already suffered a, a stroke, a debilitating stroke of his right dominant side. So he had a paralyzed right arm in 1887. The murders happened in 1888. So unless he was, you know, carrying his arm and cradling it down the streets as he's subduing a woman who's half his age, and then with one hand mutilating her with, you know, and then, of course, you know, suffocating her with one arm, his left non-dominant arm, it really can't be him either. So I had to get rid of him as a suspect. I mean, I've seen other suspects like Neil Cream who, you know, basically on the scaffold said, I am, and he didn't say Jack, but he was going to say Jack. And, um, but he was in a, a, the Illinois penitentiary back in the time when the Ripper was doing his killing. So a lot of people that I've heard, you know, or Aaron Kosminski, who I said was a 100-pound weakling, you know, you have to have, you just can't say I have a motive. You have to be, have the, you know, you have to have the strength, the athleticism, the intelligence to do what is necessary to kill people without, you know, them screaming. And obviously Kaczynski could never have held down a, a woman who was in a bar fight the night before. One of the women was in jail the, the same day of her death. I mean, she was, she was out on the streets getting drunk and fighting people. I mean, these are street fighting women. They were not, you know, pushovers. They weren't the lovely ladies of London. <laughs> uh, you mentioned a little earlier, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Dr. Daniel Friedman. He's written two books about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Doyle's World Lost and Found, and The Strange Case of Dr. Doyle, A Journey into Madness and Mayhem, in which he postulates in the afterword that there's a very strong possibility that Arthur Conan Doyle might have actually been 
been the notorious serial killer, Jack the Ripper. A little earlier, Dan, you mentioned H.H. Holmes. Uh, This is somebody that's been described as America's first serial killer. And uh, Dr. Henry Howard Holmes committed multiple murders between 1891 and 1894 in the United States. I've heard for years that there was a possibility that H.H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper. It's very interesting in looking at the name H.H. Holmes And we're talking about Arthur Conan Doyle, the man who created Sherlock Holmes in the context of this discussion of Jack the Ripper. What do we know about H.H. Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle's relationship with him, if any? What do we know about the possibility of H.H. Holmes being Jack the Ripper? By the way, um, I think several descendants of H.H. Holmes have actually said that they believe their ancestor is Jack the Ripper, based on a series of diary entries where Holmes purportedly outlines his involvement with these Whitechapel murders. What do we know about H.H. Holmes with respect to Jack the Ripper and Arthur Conan Doyle? Uh, First, before I even answer that question, just keep in mind exactly what we were talking about before with the Gilgal Beach murders. You know, like your things, the way you find someone, the way good detective work goes is that you you find a pattern and you use that pattern because mo's really a serial killer they do not change now h.h Holmes was a serial killer that's no doubt but he wasn't the ripper you know his modus of operandi of doing things was completely different than jack the rippers you know holmes wanted to do his evil deeds for financial gain and it wasn't for revenge you know he would he kill people by you know locking them in airtight vaults? I don't know if you heard this, or he poisoned them with gas, or he tortured them or burned them alive. This man loved to hear the screams of his victims. He loved to hear the screams. That's the thing. He loved to hear screams. He he also uh, would also chop up their body parts and sell them to med. He would sell their body parts to medical schools. He didn't just take them home and not do anything with them. He would sell the medical schools. But just like um, who was it? Burke and Hare from Edinburgh did the same thing. He also would take out advertisements and uh, legitimate advertisements saying, I want you to come to work for me in my, my special castle in Chicago. And then when he got them into his, his home, he would take out ins- large insurance policies on them and make himself the sole beneficiary for the money because everything to him was torture and making money. Jack the Ripper did not do this at all. He didn't work inside. He wasn't looking for money. Yes, Jack the Ripper did take the rings off of his, some of his victims. But a ring represents fidelity, loyalty, love. So by stripping a person's finger of their rings means you're you're not you you have no fidelity. You're you you're, you you cheated. You 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 did something that wasn't right between a marriage, which is what basically Holmes Jack the Ripper was doing. And the Ripper carefully selected his victims, and he killed them in the streets of London for and leave and left their bodies for the police or any passerby to find this was not the way H.H. H. Holmes worked. You know, he, the, 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 the H.H. H. Holmes works inside. He, he feared the police may, they may arrest him. He worked in secret. The Ripper didn't care if the police were the vigilance committees, amateur sleuths. He didn't care who was out on his tail. He was going to, he was out on the streets. He did two murders in the same day and then wrote a message on the wall on the same day. He didn't care who was there looking for him, but H.H. H. Holmes did. Wow. That's why you have to say that any theory that says H.H. H. Holmes is a ripper can't be, it, the MOs are completely different. 
And if you were looking for that, that M.O., like they do in the Gilgo Beach murder, you would have, he doesn't match. You would never have found the guy. But because his M.O.s always worked the same way, he poisoned, he listened for, he wanted torture, that's how you found this guy. You know, that's how you, that's how you find the serial killer. The, the, the Ripper and, and Holmes don't match up. They're not the same thing. Fascinating. Well, uh, when we come back, we're going to talk with Dr. Daniel Friedman about what we can learn from the Sherlock Holmes stories about Arthur Conan Doyle's potential involvement in these Jack the Ripper killings. We'll also try and squeeze in as many of your calls as we can here. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. here. He is the author of the new book, Doyle's World, Lost and Found. It's available on Amazon and uh, most places that books are sold. In his previous book, The Strange Case of Dr. Doyle, he puts forward for the first time the theory that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the man that uh, created Sherlock Holmes, may have actually been one of the most notorious serial killers in history. Dan, why didn't they catch this guy? Arthur Conan Doyle was certainly a very well-known guy. He was obviously knighted. He was involved in politics. He was uh, very well-known throughout London. Surely, given all the similarities that you found, it must, must have occurred to somebody in law enforcement to look into the potential similarities. Why didn't he get caught? Uh, as you know, first of all, Jack the Ripper, when seasoning Jack the Ripper on this one, Jack the Ripper was always a step or two ahead of the police. He knew how to cover his tracks. He knew how to elude them. He knew where to hide. He knew where, and he also stopped. Like a lot of serial killers keep going. They, and they, and they leave clues that really, they, they, that they shouldn't have lasted alerts the police what to, where to go, who to find. Jack the Ripper did it so cleverly and so uh, intelligently, it was impossible. As I said, I only found it going the opposite direction. You know, I, I wasn't looking for Jack the Ripper. I was looking for Conan Doyle. But he did things where he was able to really cloak everything perfectly. And he had, and he knew how to conduct and carry out a murder. I mean, you got to remember Arthur Conan Doyle is the, to me, the greatest mystery writer of all time. Uh, he invented, basically reinvented the genre. I mean, Edgar Allan Poe started detective stories, but this is a guy who really modernized it. He knew how and what to do to make sure you don't get caught. And I love the fact that Sherlock Holmes always says, "If I wasn't a detective, I would have made a great uh, uh, criminal." You know, he he sees the two the dualities of things. You know, I could have done this, but I could have done that. 
Doyle's the same way. He knew how to arrange everything. And, and that's why I kind of like, you know, even in the Sherlock Holmes tales. I mean, yeah, yes, he's the writer of Sherlock Holmes. If you read those stories carefully, you know, Sherlock Holmes is just an amateur consulting detective, yet he makes fun of Scotland Yard. I mean, could you imagine that he actually writes in the second Sherlock Holmes stories that he'd rather have a mongrel dog than the entire London police force? <laughs> Uh, I don't think Scott Lanyard would have been very happy to read that, you know, he to be compared to a dog. I mean, this is what he writes. He he makes sure that Sherlock Holmes is always better than the, the inspectors that surround them. The best of the best. And he always says Lestrade and Gregson are the best of a bad lot. That's actually a quote from the first Sherlock Holmes story. He's not very appreciative of the London police because he knows that they're not at that point in time. He knows that they're unorganized and they weren't very good. And he was pointing out all their faults. And well, yeah, that, that's why to me, if you're going out of your way to sort of smack them in the face, the the police, it would seem like the police would have a vested interest in, if only to save face, examining every possible connection that Arthur Conan Doyle had with Jack the Ripper. Yeah, and, and the fact is that Arthur Conan Doyle was just so good at what he did. Uh, he made sure that he was uh, a known face throughout London afterwards. Remember, when the, when, the, when the Ripper crimes were occurring in 1888, he was an unknown writer. No one knew who he was. He wasn't living in London at the time. He was living in, in a suburb. He wasn't there. No, he wasn't popular until three years later, until he had his, the, another story come out. Uh, the scandal in Bohemia. So we already had another one, Sign of the Four, and that also was a financial flop. So he didn't get really popular until his third Sherlock Holmes tale. And by then, the Ripper crimes were already three years gone. Uh, and then he made sure to be loved and, 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 and embraced by everybody, every committee, every, every society out there. Uh, but that, at the time of the murders, he was not that guy. Uh, he was, as a matter of fact, I, I love the fact that when I was doing my initial research, Dora was investigated by the police two times, um, one time for doing a hoax against the mayor of Birmingham, uh, England, sending out fake invitations, uh, calling them out to a, a party that didn't exist on the mayor's behalf. Another one was for killing his own future brother-in-law. Uh, and I think he actually con- makes an almost confession to this in another story he writes where he gave a, quote unquote, a patient of his too much medication, killed him accidentally, uh, then rushed his uh, burial to escape uh, being uh, suspected for uh, it, it doing the wrong thing. And that's actually a true story. I mean, and then uh, to make sure nothing, no, no, uh, Ill, uh, no ill effects from this, he marries that person's sister. Wow. My goodness. Fascinating, fascinating uh, conversation. You got to come back soon. Want to encourage everybody to pick up both of these books The Strange Case of Dr. Doyle and Doyle's World, both written by Dr. Daniel Friedman and Eugene Friedman. Dr. Friedman, thank you very much. Keep asking questions.